the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Back for another week, your host Kyle Leone, feeling just right as rain recording this episode because this is one of my, uh, I'll just say it, it's one of my favorite horror movies. It's not even that good, but it's one of my favorite. I've got a lot of uh, sentimental attachment to this particular one. Already spoiled by the title of today's episode, you are listening to Event Horizon 1997 on the Gory Days. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to barrel right into it. I don't I don't have any preamble, except that if for whatever reason anybody out there is interested, I've launched a new podcast. You can check out Feeling It Out with Kyle and Connor wherever you're listening to podcasts right now. It's a podcast about being a creative with mental illness and just what it's like. It's a lot more, uh, it's more of me and my friend Connor just being a little bit more open and uh, sharing more things than I'm frankly... Uh, is off-brand for the gory days here. And so it's the last I'll say of it. If you're interested, it's called Feeling It Out with Kyle and Connor. Check it out. On to the movie. Event Horizon, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, who, of course, would go on to do several of the Resident Evil movies, uh, the first Alien vs. Predator, unfortunately, Death Race, and a couple, I think, all of its sequels. And I was interested to find out Monster Hunter. He's uh, attached to a 2020-released film based on the video game series Monster Hunter. So that'll probably be as good as Resident Evil was, but hey, Resident Evil is still the biggest uh, or the most successful franchise based on a video game, so, I mean, film franchise based on a video game, so, I mean, who am I to say? Uh, Anyway, produced by Lawrence Gordon, Lloyd Levin, and Jeremy Bolt, this film was written by Philip Eisner, who currently teaches screenwriting courses at the UCLA Extension, which is interesting. Uh, and Michael, uh, music by Michael Kamen. So, this movie stars Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, Kathleen Kinlan. So, already, that's two Oscar-nominated actors in this movie. Jolie Richardson, Richard T. Jones, Jack Noseworthy, Jason Isaacs, and Sean Pertwee as the crew for the uh, Event Horizon. So this movie, in 1995, Paul W.S. Anderson, the director for this movie, directed Mortal Kombat, and it was a success. And after that movie, he apparently had free reign to choose his next project, and unfortunately, he chose Soldier, a movie that came out in 1998, but until then, production was put on hold so Kurt Russell could bulk up for the role. <laughs> so in the meantime, uh, Anderson looked for another project, and that's when Paramount Pictures sent Philip Eisner's original script for Event Horizon, which they'd been trying to develop with the producers Lawrence Gordon and Lloyd Levin. Uh Anderson didn't like the alienness. He found it was kind of uh, aping alien, so he gave the script a major rewrite, and I'm going to get into all of that. If you're familiar at all with the backstory of how this movie got made, so directors usually have a, uh, I learned this 
if you didn't know this, I learned this in my research for this movie. Directors typically have a standard 10-week editing period to produce the first cut of a film, as guaranteed by the Directors Guild of America, as as uh, laid out in union rules. You have 10 days, to, or you have a standard 10-week period to edit and produce the first cut of your film. 10 weeks. Paramount, though, wanted to have a hit film before Titanic's planned September release date. So the director agreed with the Paramount studio to an editing period of only six weeks and promised to deliver the film by August 1997. Six weeks became four weeks, and only a rough cut of the film could be assembled. And so this is that famous original cut that you hear about, the uh, original too-long-for-cinema uh, uh, cut, but more importantly, it was so gory. Audiences were shocked by how gruesome it was, and there's reports that people fainted at the test screening, specifically during the extended blood orgy segment. Uh, and Paramount naturally demanded a shorter runtime with less gore, so that's what they got. And Paul W.S. Anderson would say that he's unhappy with this final cut, that they cut too much out of it. But that's what happens when you go up with a big studio. So this movie released with a budget of 60... Uh, so this movie came out on Friday, August 15th in 1997 with a budget of $60 million. Event Horizon only made back at the box office $26.7 million. Not even half. That is what we call <laughs> in the biz a commercial and critical flop. A failure, a bust. That's a lot of money to throw at uh, the director of Mortal Kombat. <laughs> um, but if you love this movie like I do, you're in luck because Variety reported in August of this year, well, of last year, 2019, uh, Paramount Television and Amazon Studios are developing a TV series with the producers of the original film, Lawrence Gordon and Lloyd Levin, attached. So I don't know what that would be i don't know if it would be a continuation of this story or a brand new story or you know like a reinterpretation a remix as uh the watchmen writers were uh deemed it so i'm looking forward to that i hope that happens somewhere down the pike uh but enough about the fond future let's talk well <laughs> let's get right into the even further fonder future uh for with my first segment of what the hell just happened so we get our title card uh, that lets us know that we're in the year 2047. We get 2015, 2032, we went to Mars, 2040, we sent uh, the Event Horizon out, and 2047, here we are as, oh, well, let's introduce our characters here. So the crew, I mentioned uh, who plays everybody, but I'm going to try my hardest to refer to everybody as their characters' names from here on out. So the crew for the Lewis and Clark is Captain Miller, the commanding officer, Dr. Weir, the designer, Peters, the medical technician, Stark, the communications and executive officer, Cooper, the rescue technician, Justin, the chief engineer, DJ, the medical doctor, and Smitty, the pilot. And this crew, the Lewis and Clark, has been sent to find the Event Horizon. Seven years ago, in 2040, the Event Horizon was launched to, well, 
the people that worked on it knew and the people that uh, heard about it were told something else, but it launched and it disappeared. And so seven years have gone by. We never heard trace of the crew or what happened to that ship. And now out of nowhere, it's appeared in Neptune. It's appeared like in the upper atmosphere, the lower orbit, whatever, or the upper orbit of Neptune. So the Lewis and Clark is a crew of people who were supposed to be on leave and they were all like unceremoniously it didn't sound like they volunteered for this but they were all ripped from leave and taken onto this mission to go to find the distress signal or even i don't know if there is one actually but to just go out there and find the event horizon like everyone's heard about the event horizon it was a big deal that uh this vessel just vanished uh i mean I, I would love to hear about something like that. We we still talk about like the uh, uh, Amelia Earhart, like what what happened to her. So last thing before I get into it, this movie, God, uh, director Anderson loves to do these like nauseating spiral pull shots, specifically that first one where uh, D- Sam. <laughs> oh, that was a close one. Where Doctor Weir like wakes up on board and looks outside at the big giant spider like. Sp- space girder filled weird space station and it keeps spinning and spinning and spinning and oh my god i literally i can't look at it i gotta like uh cover most of the screen and then once i'm certain it's done spinning then i can check in and oh okay here's the movie the lewis and clark uh the captain's ridiculous (laughs) hanging robot chair and uh so they're going into not cryo sleep, but uh, I guess the Lewis and Clark is going to make some kind of jump because they're uh, Neptune is far away. As I understand it, it takes a long time to get there, but they are able to get uh, like within spitting distance uh, in 56 days. So whatever is in the crew, there's some throwaway line about not being in the tube and your bones uh, liquefying. Um, and Weir says like, "Oh, I've seen that effect on rats. Like you liquefying a lot of." A lot of rat skeletons, Dr. Weir. But that's where we first see uh, his first nightmare. Weird Claire with no eyes. So uh, Dr. Weird here, uh, Dr. Weird, <laughs> I'm probably going to call him that a few times. Dr. Weir hears Weird calls uh, someone calling his name and he responds to it as Claire, so that's why I wrote down Claire, because uh, it's his wife. Long story short, it's his wife. Uh, and she's got no eyes, and <laughs> I love his scream there. <laughs> um, anyway, everyone's awake, and that's where we meet the crew proper, and everybody, like, uh, Miller goes around and introduces everybody. And Weir finally gets to explain what the event horizon was. So he first he tells them, okay, this is what the Lewis and Clark's mission is, to find the event horizon. And everyone's like, ooh. And then he says, okay, and this is what the event horizon actually was. It was an experiment in faster-than-light travel. He, uh, Dr. Weir not only designed the ship, but he also designed a gravity drive. And it was supposed to open a gateway to Proxima Centauri. And when they turned on uh, Dr. Weir's gravity drive, it vanished for seven years. Uh, Oh, and by the way, there's also a really scary tape that all of our top scientists tried decoding um, that ends with what one of our pilots is sure uh, to be, save me in Latin. Anyway, they literally hear that tape and they're just like, oh, okay, never mind. Anyway. They start boarding the Event Horizon, and they walk through the big, giant, 
tunnel where there's a, I, it's the bridge i get it but the event horizon is designed so bizarrely it's designed like a giant cross mm-hmm where one end of the ship is like a little bulb at the end, and then the other end with the three points is another part of the ship, and the long stalk in the middle is just a big, empty bridge. It's cool. It looks cool because it's not aerodynamic, and I like it when space stations, uh, especially in movies and stuff, (laughs) of course in movies, not in real life, but I love it when space stations uh, look kind of weird like this with all their girders like the first one at the beginning with all of its girders and stuff this one looks pretty cool but functionally it's a gigantic corridor hallway that they have to you have to walk it and it just seems it just seems impractical so they're scanning for life and they're looking for stuff and justin enters a big giant spinning tunnel like out of a fun house literally i i've seen one of these i don't know if you have but uh when you're at like the fun house or at a county fair or something and it's uh a long tunnel with mirrors along it in a big giant tube exactly like that and one mirror is spinning one direction and another mirror in a tube is spinning another way and it's disorienting you have to hold on to the sides of the rails because you can't walk in a straight line it does something to your brain uh and so it's it's fun as a kid but it must be terrifying doing this uh both in context and as an actor i can imagine that must have been pretty uh difficult to walk a straight line in there but i love how it's a cool set piece and it's only explained by dr weir saying It allows you to enter the second chamber without compromising the magnetic fields. Good. Uh, Peters finds a CD-ROM, and that's when we get, like, maybe our first scare, which is this corpse, corpsicle, she calls it, floating around. It looks, like, mauled and eviscerated, and it's the first thing that makes you go, like, huh, what what happened here? Because there's no... There's no blood at first. You see later these nasty entrails are like smeared up into the ceiling sides of the ship. They never really <laughs> take note of, but there's no blood or anything. So when Justin goes through that tunnel, he finds the core, the spinning black edge core, spiky uh, Hellraiser ball thing. And it opens up swallows Justin well Justin you know reaches up to it and touches it and he gets sucked in and then like explodes and it explodes everything it blows up a bunch of the ship it blows up uh, a big hole in the Lewis and Clark and everybody's freaking out and long story short they abandon ship and uh go on to the event horizon which has air and power still So now they're stranded on the event horizon because the Clark, the Lewis and Clark, has a giant rupture in it, seven meters, and they have to repair that, and they only have air in the event horizon for 20 hours. Plus, Justin's in a super coma after getting pulled out of the portal by Cooper. Uh, Yeah, he's like not just out, his his eyes are wide open, but he's not responding. It's, It's creepy, but... Cooper tries to say that he saw Justin come out of the black hole, but uh, Dr. Weir, who designed the thing, of course, is like, the gateway couldn't be open because the warp drive wasn't activated. It can't just turn on by itself. Uh, And so that's what prompts Miller to ask Weir, all right, what the hell is that thing? What's in the core? So we all take a field trip to the 
the core. And he explains that the core houses a gateway. The gateway's three rings align to create an artificial black hole, which somehow allows the ship to travel to any point in space that it chooses. Like, I understand, like, okay, I can suspend my disbelief for comic book, sci-fi, whatever, that, okay, they, they can artificially create and open a black hole. Fine. The the logical leap to then say that you somehow are able to control that power? He says we can use that power to bend space-time. Well, I thought you were just entering the black hole, but now you're saying that you use the power of the black hole to quote, bend space-time, unquote. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of leaps of logic and holes to make this story the story that it wants to tell. Um, But anyway, Weir is bizarrely insistent on the machine's safety and harmlessness because this is something that I've always been confused about in this movie, and I'll I'll save it for uh, Mystery LLC. All right, so now this is where things start to get kind of weird. Peters hallucinates her... uh, son inside of a med thing then they watch old footage from the crew (laughs) and that's the uh fantastic blood orgy then a power drain happens they keep asking each other what caused the power drain and it's uh the core the core has somehow activated and so like that's it it's activated and it's draining power from everything else straight to the core so Weir has to climb through these like motherboard tunnels that remind me of 2001: A Space Odyssey that are all green and I mean they're they're green in this one in 2001. I'm pretty sure he's red, but uh, he's climbing through there to fix the problem. Meanwhile, Justin's seizing and he opens his or he like is conscious enough to tell I think it's Cooper at the time. <laughs> I didn't write it down. Uh, he's coming and he goes, "Who's coming?" And Justin says, "The." dark ah, and start seizing some more <laughs> but uh weir's in the tunnel in the motherboard tunnels and he hears his wife again and he's trying to back up out of the tunnels and his flashlight isn't working he's like uh miller I, i'm having some problems in here <laughs> uh, and his wife appears and she's got no eyes again Ooh, so scary the a man Burning from head to toe, totally naked, emerges from the water. This is too early in the movie for something this crazy to happen. It's nuts. The pacing, I'll get into it. But the man rises from the water, is burning, and they fade to white. And then we see a little circle where everyone's sharing the weird things that they saw. Uh, And some of them share what they saw, some of them don't. Stark's theory uh, that she shares with Miller is that the ship brought back from wherever it traveled obviously it's it travels through interdimensional whatever he showed us the trick with the pencils when it came back it brought back a life force and i love the way uh miller sums this up he goes what are you trying to tell me right now that this ship is alive (laughs) just the wham line yes yes the ship is alive the 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 haunted house movie where the haunted house it's not ghosts it's the house itself and it's trying to get you <laughs> so things go from bad to worse uh peter's loses justin she's just in the med bay and he's gone and the med bay explodes for no reason so she runs peter's runs to where cooper's and uh well, and uh, stark are and something's like 
leaning against the door, slamming against it, something huge. And Weir's like, open the door and gets up and Stark has to stop him. Like, Weir is the first one to succumb to whatever's going on here because I feel like he's the most open to it. It's He built this thing. It's his father. This is his, like, uh, child that he uh, brought into existence. So when the slamming stops, Justin's in the airlock. And the way that they do this scene... Justin is clearly possessed like he's seen the the, the horrors that led the first crew to <laughs> commit a blood orgy and he's ready to commit suicide and it isn't until like he starts the airlock decompression that he he like wakes up and he's like oh no let me out let me out open the door like he didn't know he was activating the airlock and the ship released him and it's just so cruel and he's so scared and Oh, God, seeing his veins, like the decompression in his eyes. Oh, I'm I'm simultaneously relieved and angry that we never get a good look at him. Um, but long story short, uh, Miller saves him. He goes, Justin actually goes out into space for like a few seconds, and Miller comes and tackles him back inside, and they save him, and we never see Justin again, but he lives. <laughs> I, I swear, I thought this, obviously you're supposed to think he's the first one to die. He's the first one to go into the the portal or whatever, but he makes it all the way to the end. So things go from worse to even worse. The CO2 levels will become toxic in two hours. And after a little chat with uh, between Miller and Weir, Miller hallucinates a man yelling, help me. And it's pretty creepy. I can imagine like if you had PTSD or something from an event similar to this, you would hear your friend yelling help me like ugh, just like that and so it's this story that he never told anybody about this man named Corrick that he just couldn't help oh i love uh, miller's monologue there about have you ever seen fire and zero gravity it's beautiful uh, and the waves and how his friend burned alive and how he couldn't help him he left him and how it haunts him but he never told anybody and somehow the ship knows and it knows its fear is in a secret <laughs> that's what dj's like oh do you remember that uh, Latin that I thought said, save me? Eh, it actually says, save yourselves from hell. And when Miller hears that, he's like, yep, mm-hmm, that's what I thought. <laughs> so the, so earlier I said it was the blood orgy footage, but it was the, the footage right beforehand. You see the captain saying like, all right, we're ready to turn on the gravity drive. Uh, I'd just like to thank everybody on the ship and all of their families. And here we go. Boop, rah! And it turns to screaming, and they're like, huh, that's strange. We'll try to decode it. So now they have decoded it. I don't know who is filming this blood orgy, <laughs> but they got a lot of good shots flying around this party. And I love it. I love this moment. This is when Miller's like, we're aborting. We're going to get to a safe distance, and then I'm going to blow some tack missiles at her from a safe distance. Fuck this ship. <laughs> and that's when the ship, like, reacts, and the lights start to shift, and... uh. Weir says, you can't leave. She won't let you. And, like, fades into the darkness. So they're aborting the mission. Unfortunately, Peters, when trying to get the oxygen tanks for the uh, Lewis and Clark, now that I guess it's ready to go, she saw her son again and climbs up into the core and is about to embrace him and then doesn't look where she's going and falls hard and man, yeah, when she hits that, part of me wants to go back when I'm done with this and watch that. When she hits the great, she hits it so hard and her leg's broken and she's, I'm pretty sure she's dead on impact. I hope she is. God damn. 
But Weir is in the core. He finds Peters and, you know, is concerned for a second until he hears his wife again. And then, uh, I feel like this, this is, it's a cool reveal, but it just doesn't have the weight with this character because we don't like him at this point. He's already like kind of creepy and weird, but the reveal is that uh, it's a neat little transition. He hears his wife calling his name. He walks from, you know, left to right and the transition, he's back in his, I guess his space house, his space room back home. And uh, he's trying to talk to her and he's saying like, oh, I'm sorry I was gone for so long and he's not, she, she can't see him and the reveal is that this is the night she killed herself. She slit her wrist. She poured herself a bath and then slit her wrists. And now she's there. She's got no eyes. And he says, uh, she says like, no, it's okay. Now you're with me. Now you're with me forever. And he rips out his own eyes and he's screaming, ah, my eyes. At some point, I guess Weir was able to get all the way back to the Clark because DJ sees uh, Dr. Weir doing something on the Clark and Miller deduces that it's probably him planting explosives. And so DJ, instead of running off of the ship for safety, he thinks that he can save it. He finds the bomb and it's sad. He, he gets this look on his face. He's like, mm, I screwed up. And he explodes. Uh, and the Clark explodes. And it's this... Oh, man, uh, the shot of the Clark exploding, it starts off kind of crappy, but then it looks, it, it finishes off awesome. Uh, I think it might have been like a miniature effect. Uh, there's definitely some CGI on top of it, but it looks like it was a miniature, which I always appreciate. Unfortunately, when the Clark exploded, Cooper got launched out into space, but don't worry, he's able to use his air jets to rocket himself back to the movie. <laughs> Um, yeah. Weir finds DJ, vivisects him. Um, he's got that scar down the front of his chest, and it's it's horrifying after reading the trivia notes, because all the actors were encouraged to uh, create their own backstories for their characters, and this actor in particular created a backstory related to this big scar down the front of his chest that when he was a child, he went through a lot of uh, intense uh, surgeries and... Uh, that that that's what the ship is playing on when uh, Weir vivisects him like that, and knowing that it's like oh that's that's horrible because because it's not anything that they show, and unfortunately it's not anything that he shows on his face like oh my god this is so triggering and so terrifying this is literally my worst nightmare coming to life, oh which is a missed opportunity. Uh, it's still a good death because Miller finds him and he's all strung up and his like entrails are coming out and he's gross Jesus. It's so over the top. Like, we're, he doesn't do that with anybody else, but I guess he really hated DJ. So now Miller, armed with a, like, rivet gun. Uh, if you haven't figured out that this movie heavily inspired Dead Space, by the time he picks up a rivet gun and is, like, using an engineering tool to kill a, a hell monster, i.e. Weir, uh, it's it's pretty easy to see now. But when Miller finds Stark, the gun is gone. So they turn the corner, they they walk through the corridor, and Weir is sitting in the captain's chair now. And he's sewed his eyes shut after he vivisected DJ. And so Weir explains in so many words that the event horizon went through a dimension, a different dimension. It didn't just go into, you know, hyperspace or whatever. And uh, it actually went to a completely different dimension, a dimension of pure chaos and pure evil, e.g. hell, maybe. And the ship came back alive. 
When it went there, it was just a normal ship, but when it came back, it came back alive. And so Cooper slams back into the ship because he was rocketing back to the movie, and we're like, because he can't see, his eyes are closed, so he just reacts. He shoots out the window and causes explosive decompression, and everything's getting sucked out, and Weir is holding on to the chair, and then eventually Weir gets sucked out into the space, and it's a pretty, like, shocking. He gets, like, ground up up against the ceiling before the chair, uh, before he gets sucked out. Miller and Stark survive after some struggling, and Cooper's in the airlock, so we've got Miller, Stark, and Cooper are all uh, ready to... Well, to, to formulate a plan, because Weir has activated the gravity drive. I guess he did it before he died, um, and they only have a few minutes before that's going to turn on. So they got to blow the bridge and get the hell out of here. Miller goes all the way down that big giant hallway to arm all of the little bombs that they set up earlier to blow the bridge. Meanwhile, Cooper activates the emergency beacon, and we get the the weird, like, giant blood waterfall hallucination part. Uh, it's it's better to interpret that it's it's the ship, which is alive, like, defending itself through the only way that it knows how with horror tropes. And so, like, literally the most physically invasive one it can muster at that moment is a deluge of blood. <laughs> which maybe slows them down for a hot minute. Miller's just about finished planting the final charges when Korik, the burning man, shows up again and forces Miller into the core with a fire blast. And then there's this neat like little fire like pew, needle that almost snipes Miller and he like turns his head and dodges it. But the core is on fire. It's just absolute chaos. And Weir's back, but he's all cut up. And poor Sam Neill had to get into the chair at 3 a.m. to... Uh, get makeup on for eight hours to look like that lame final weir that we see. The uber weir, I called it. Oh, and he's got his eyes back, those bl baby blues. So they fight, and Miller sees hell. Uh, somehow weir, or whatever weir is, is able to like show Lawrence Fishburne's <sighs> Miller what he sees. And it's just this like montage super fast montage of what this movie could have been and uh oh, it's a shame it's gonna be a tv series they should remake this movie an indie uh uh filmmaker should remake this movie the way it was meant to be as god is gory and awful unfortunately they use the they i always feel worried about this they used amputees to represent people who are getting their limbs ripped off and part of it is like oh that's exploitative and the other part is well they're getting work but they should be getting work as just an amputated person. They're still a person instead of a person getting their arm ripped off, getting horribly maimed and disfigured in a way that, like, oh, my God, they might as well be dead. Uh, it's a cool it's a cool montage, and I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I have gone back and, you know, scrubbed through there to see just exactly what the hell is going on. I haven't done that for the blood orgy. Hmm, there's an idea. Uh, so he hits the detonator and he blows the bridge. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. But Stark, Cooper, <laughs> amazingly, Justin, survive, uh, wait, Stark, Cooper, uh, yeah, amazingly survive, and it's 72 days later. 
that we finally see a rescue vessel boarding with uh, the Event Horizon lifeboat. And there's one last scare where the rescue guy's visor opens and it's weird and it's like, oh no! But that was just a surprise. I mean, that was that was just a joke. Uh, Cooper is like, no, 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 we're safe. You're safe. And she's still kind of freaking out. And I feel like she's just barely starting to calm down. And I was sitting there, I was thinking, I, I kind of don't want her to calm down. I want her to be freaking out as those doors close, as as the movie ends. Because, like, what what can you trust at this point? What is real? Uh, I don't know if her hallucinations were really that intense. But uh, that's Event Horizon from 1997. So my, really, my first question, well, okay, this is the one thing I love to do. So let's break down the monster of this movie. The monster is the ship, the Event Horizon. And to play into uh, Stark's theory that it's a, let's pretend it's a living organism and the people, the crew from the Lewis and Clark are foreign uh, organisms or, or uh, like a virus or foreign objects. And so the white blood cells inside this organism are going to do their job and fight off this foreign contaminant. Uh, and that's the way that this ship operates, except that it also has like, you know, mind reading capabilities, except so, so, so that, that is its white blood cells. It can use the powers it gained from going into the hell dimension to reach into the mind of whatever thing is on the ship, uh, deduce its biggest fear, and then present it to them so that they kill themselves. Because the ship doesn't really seem like it can actually do that itself. And I guess the ship is purely malevolent. It only wants to kill. It's most happy when it's completely empty and desolated. It seems like something that was truly malevolent would try to seek out other things and, like, maybe even try to get to uh, Earth. I think, is there Earth in this world in 20? Yeah, there's got to be Earth. There's got to be Earth in 2048. Yeah, what am I thinking? Uh, so, yeah, that's the monster of Event Horizon, which is communed by Dr. Weir. He just built the thing. I, I, I It's kind of thrown... It's, it's a weird thing that they play around with of whether or not Dr. Weir was always connected to the Event Horizon. Obviously, he was connected to it in that he, you know, built it and he built the gravity drive. But once it came back, like, for the last seven years, has he been somehow in tune with it it like is it singing to him is it has it been infecting him with uh claire messages this whole time uh i don't know but i feel like that's another thread that's it's it's interesting with an ensemble movie like this because you want to give everybody their backstory but some characters like peters only get like a line about their kid uh while other characters don't get anything at all i'm looking at you dj so yeah yeah I mean, it's a it's a stupid question, but like, how how do you harness the power of a black hole to bend space time? And honestly, if there is an answer to that question, I'm already bored by it. But please, please reach out because I want people to know that answer. But uh, uh, honk shoe. Yeah, I, I guess I don't have any uh, questions. I'm getting tired, and my eye feels weird. So let's just skip to kills, kills, kills. There's only four deaths in this movie, and you only really get to enjoy two of them. Peters, uh, these are in no particular order. Peter, I, actually, I think these are in order of death. Peters falls. Awesome, awesome fall. She just wanted to see her son again, and 
man, she plummets for it. And then the ship does the extra evil thing of having the vision, like, smile mockingly down at her as she dies. Uh, Smith explodes when he finds the uh, the charge that Weir had planted on the Clark when it explodes. DJ was vivisected, and I thought this was interesting. So the plan for DJ's death was originally for his <laughs> entrails to still be attached to him as he hung over them in that little... You really only get, like, one shot of it. God, so many editing things in this movie where they hold on something that's truly gory and awesome for way too short. So the actor Isaacs was supposed to raise his head, the actor playing DJ, who was supposed to raise his head, showing that he was still alive, Ugh, prompting Miller to shoot him in the head to put him out of his misery. Again, like raising the stakes of what the hell is going on here, that uh, if the event horizon had the ability to incept ideas into your mind to make you go crazy and maybe that like you know took a long time now it has an envoy a physical like manifestation of itself in the form of dr weir that can go around and slash people up in in all kinds of horrible ways and then the last death is uh miller who of course blows himself up in a heroic sacrifice but those two cooper and justin are two uh ones that you're like man i could have swore that they were gonna die uh stark i can't really say that much for uh so yeah as those of you know i usually have a couple more uh segments here like screaming themies and theory canal uh so why don't i just try and dream up some themes from this one there's obviously the Christian theme of hell being a, well, you know, it's hell. They call it hell a bunch of times being a real place. But a uh, it's something that's popped up in, as far as I know, most famously 40K, uh, where they have a, 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 that's their interstellar travel, is that, yes, you can go through portals to uh, get from one place to another, like, billions of miles very quickly, you have to go through hell to do it, and doing it every time is every time you do it is a gamble. For all you know, your ship could end up in a hellscape for the rest of eternity, or you could very well end up having a blood orgy, exactly like this movie. There's so many elements of this movie that are so good as pieces that were later adapted into other things, video games, comics, movies, all kinds of stuff that are frankly better than this will ever be. And it's a shame. And I don't know if there's any point in pointing blame at the studios or the, the well, the studios, <laughs> Paramount, for demanding that this movie come out before Titanic. When, God, this movie never stood a chance. Titanic, really? Oh, man. But yeah, 97 was, was quite the year. Anyway, I guess what I'm wrapping up around to is that I'm wrapping up. So, thank you once again for listening to the gory days, Event Horizon. Oh, crap! I almost forgot to rate this freaking movie. Uh, I gotta rate it on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. I really like this movie, because my fiancé and I, we've watched this a few times, and we just, we're suckers for uh, this, like, mystery horror. I just feel like the pacing is kind of bizarre. It starts so heavy with that burning man, and it never really gets any higher than that the whole time. Uh, And I feel like it was supposed to with like that scary montage or the blood orgy. The stakes were supposed to get higher than just a burning man. 
But test screenings and all of that, uh, it's not even that interesting. It's, it's, the movie was a, a, a mess of production, and it's a real shame. Because I'm going to give Event Horizon four thumbs, and I'm going to award those thumbs. I'm going to give one to, what was his name? I'm going to give one to Noah Huntley, the man who played Korik, the Burning Man, because he is on fire. He's going to need one of those thumbs. I'm going to give an, <clears throat> I'm going to give another thumb to. Oh God, I hate to do this. I'm going to give a thumb to Holly Shant, who played. Dr. Weir's wife, Claire, because how else is she going to hold that razor blade? Oh! I'm going to give another thumb to uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Captain Miller, of course, uh, carrying this whole movie with his unfeeling, I'm not attracted to anybody ever. It's kind of funny how this movie has no like shoehorned-in romances between any of the uh, commanding officers or characters on, on the vessel or whatever. And I'm going to give my last thumb. I really want to give it to Peters because Kathleen Kinlan is an amazing actor. But I'm going to give it to Sam Neill because Sam Neill is so freaking wackadoo in this movie. And all of his scares and all of the craziness that they make him do. He's basically the lead. I find it funny that I guess Lawrence Fishburne is a bigger draw at the time. But, well, yeah, of course, because he's Oscar nominated. Sam Neill. Sorry, Sam. Uh, yeah, so that's my four thumbs. All right, thank you for listening to The Gory Days, Event Horizon. <laughs> One of my, uh, I say it's my favorite, but I only gave it four thumbs. <laughs> uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you're interested in listening to another podcast by me, Kyle, you can check out Feeling It Out with Kyle and Connor, the podcast where I talk about uh, being a creative with mental illness. But until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days.